time together to honor you, to praise you, to come together and have our all the gifts you've given us mixed all into one big potpourri of uh, gospel pleasure this morning that we could approach you and one another with a love and a redeemed heart and a mind that's ready to reason and, and hear from you and open up our souls to all that you have that you want us to be blessed with this morning that we in turn may have appropriate hearts and minds to bless you with. Thank you for our guests this morning. We pray that the time has been and will continue to be profitable. We pray for our teacher this morning. We pray for those who can't be with us in sickness. We think of Wally and Doreen and Dave this morning, Lord. Give them comfort in their hearts. Somehow bring to their souls, Lord, what they would otherwise get here. We do ask and pray that in Jesus' name you would do these things. Amen. 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 It's recording. Okay, we're on. And by the way, whatever you say, if you want to contribute to the study, speak up loud enough, we'll get you on the tape. And you can listen to these. I'm going to mention it hopefully at church too, that you can listen to all of the Sunday school classes online, just like sermons are online too, so have the Sunday school classes online as well. So if you miss them or whatever, or you want to recommend them, we can always do that. Okay, so uh, Beverly, would you turn to Hebrews 4.10? Okay. And Ken Kozak, would you do Ephesians 1.9 and chapter 1, verse 9 and 10? And before, while they're doing that, um, name, just, I, need, I need a hand or two here. Name someone who people have believed, Christians particularly, have believed was the Antichrist. The Pope. The Pope, very good. He's probably number one on the list. As a matter of fact, a lot of the Protestant historic confessions see the Pope as being the Antichrist. Uh, okay, go, go back to my thoughts. Hitler's another one. Just give me one. All right. Now, Mrs. Okay. George, you've got one too? Yeah. Okay. And you know what? That's right. The scar on his head, that one's big. Everybody felt really confident about that because it, it matches in the book of Revelation. Anyone else? Uh, come on. Who? Henry Kissinger was one, Secretary of State in the 70s. Did you have him? Lots of, lots of politicians. Barack Obama was the Antichrist. Donald Trump is the Antichrist. <laughs> yeah, all, all, a lot of the American presidents. I don't know about Trump. I haven't heard that one. But yes, Obama and even Reagan back in the day. And this one will really shock you. And that, this is not a stretch either. Some believe Billy Graham was the Antichrist. Wow. I don't know if you ever heard that. Well, anyway, that's how crazy <laughs> prophecy can get. Um, and the imaginations go on and on and on when it comes to trying to interpret uh, ancient texts and giving them current day interpretations. It's, it's, it's a very difficult thing. Eschatology and prophecy is not as easy as some would like to make it out. Some people think, well, I want to read the book of Revelation so I can understand how the world's going to end. Yeah. Well, good luck to you. So, uh, see if you can make heads or tails out of it. There's a lot to know about a book like Revelation or apocalyptic literature in general because it's a different genre of literature and things are interpreted differently than they would be in other genres of biblical literature. Okay, Beverly, give us Hebrews 4. Uh, yes. oh, did I say 10? I think I meant yes, you did. 9. You think you want 9. Okay. What do? I don't have my glasses For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Next verse. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. 
What does that mean? If Joshua had given them rest, see the Hebrews who were reading this book written to them may have thought that because they had entered into the promised land, that God had spoken to them through the prophets, that they had arrived at the final destiny. But Joshua did not give them this permanent rest and future inheritance that God had predicted to come to pass in the days ahead. So the Sabbath rest that's being referred to there was one that could be understood that we're enjoying it now. The Israelites didn't enter into the rest. So the rest was left for another day. Joshua didn't give them that rest, that sabbatical rest. But in our day, I think we have eaten the, the grapes of Eshkol. We're tasting of the good things to come, the powers of the age to come. In Hebrews it says, we have the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's like a, like, it's like a ring that seals the assurance that we have a future destiny. Right? That we're sealed until the day of redemption. We are, in, we are partakers of the Holy Spirit. We are, uh, partake of the Word of God, the taste of the good things to come, and so on, the powers of the age to come. But there's still, we, we still have to recognize that we have not yet arrived. Even though the full preterist, and I'll talk about that at some point, and by the way, I cannot talk about this whole subject in one session, so depending on what openings there would be, we'll fill in subsequent to, uh, topical uh, things that relate to this subject of, I'm calling it the millennium because that's probably the most focused thing about prophecy. And also, of course, how does the eternal state, the uh, new heavens and the new earth fit in? How, how does that work? So we'll talk about some of the different uh, views that have been espoused throughout the history of the church and even more particularly lo uh, recently. So, uh, Ken, you've got Ephesians 1, 9, and 10. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. To bring all things together, things that are in heaven and things on earth, are all going to be put under the headship of Jesus Christ. So that's something that's not happening right now. That's futuristic, obviously. It will occur in the days ahead. By the way, if you have any questions or comments, please raise your hand if I'm not clear or if something comes to your mind. We'll have kind of an open Bible study in that way. So I want all of us to turn to another verse together. And let's look at... Uh, Probably a couple of verses. One would be Second Peter chapter three, and we're going to start at verse ten. Second Peter chapter three and verse ten, and then we'll uh, look at another one in First Corinthians ten. After that, Second Corinthians ten. Second Peter three ten. Oh, uh, yeah, Second Peter. I'm sorry. Chapter three, verse ten. Okay, Ron, can you read that, brother Ron? Could that? Second Peter chapter three verse ten. Second Peter. Okay. <clears throat> okay. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. 
and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and all its works will be burned. Keep going. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people are you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will be will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's good. Mm. Verse 13. So that those, those are key verses, and that all hinges on the second coming of Jesus Christ. It says he has appeared once in the end of the world to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, but unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin, apart from sin, in, in his revelation to us. That's Hebrews 9, verse 27 and 28. So, there's two advents of Christ, not three. Uh, you have those that believe there's a secretive second coming, and then a public second coming. We'll talk about that as well. I think probably the best way to introduce it is, um, I have a few books that I, well, first of all, the lousiest book that's here. It's, a, it's the only book that I ever wrote, and it's called The Hermeneutical Flaws of Dispensationalism. Uh, it's my only copy. Um, you, can, I, you can get it if you ever wanted to. John Riesinger wrote the introduction to it. Um, it's probably... Huh? I have one of those. You do have one. He got it at the, the Bunyan Conference, probably. Um, it's really a... a, a, a you could, well, the flaws of dispensationalism is what, what the book's about and why there's, that's an errant system. Um, if you buy it, I don't get any royalties from it, so there's no motive on my part mentioning that book. I just thought I'd throw that at you. Um, this, I think, is an excellent book here, A Case for Amillennialism by Kim yes. Riddlebarger. Um, and, and a lot of these types of books give you the other, the, uh, all the alternative views, and this does a great job. And this one here particularly is called The Meaning of the Millennium, uh, Four Views, edited by Robert Klaus. So you have four views of the, the of the what the millennium is by Eldon Ladd, Herman Hoyt, Lorraine Bettner, and Anthony Hokima. Uh, this is one of my favorites because it it's kind of a very simplistic way of explaining what is amillennialism, postmillennialism, premillennialism, and the other view would be dispensational premillennialism, which is a certain brand of premillennialism. But I think you'll enjoy, if you can bear with me a little bit, I think it would be worth uh, a minute or two to read the introduction to this book because it highlights, I think, some of the things that we'd like to talk about. One of the more difficult themes with which interpreters of the Bible must deal with the teaching of the kingdom of God. The problem is brought into sharp focus when the believer gives his or her explanation of such passages as Daniel 2 and Revelation 20. Attempts to relate these texts to the course of human history have led Christians to fashion a number of different systems explaining the return of Christ and his reign, three of which have been labeled premillennial, amillennial, and postmillennial. These categories, although helpful and widely accepted, are in certain respects unfortunate as the distinctions involve a great deal more than the time of Christ's return. 
the kingdom expected by the premillennialist is quite different from the kingdom anticipated by the postmillennialist. Not only with respect to the time and manner in which it will be established, but also in regard to its nature and the way Christ will exercise control over it. These views and their implications can be understood more clearly by defining them in detail. I'll just pause for a second there. Can you name a, a popular people, uh, teachers in the past or present, that were post-millennialists? James White. James White has become one, correct, the current one, that's right. Uh, anybody else? Okay, I'll speed this up. Jonathan Edwards. Many of the Pur Puritans did. Ian Murray does. Um, um, I think that, that covers a, a wide range right there. Some of the early church fathers did as well, apparently. Uh, premillennialists, who would uh, name some names with premillennialists? There's Hal a lot Lindsay. of names Hal there. Lindsay. Yeah, well, Hal Lindsay, of course, would be a dispensational premillennialist. Um, millennium, of course, my wife was asking, what does millennium mean? Maybe you're like her and don't know what it means. It means a thousand. A millennium is a thousand. So we're talking about... 8,000 years. And where do we find the, the words a thousand years mentioned in the Bible? You know, it's only found six times and it's only in one chapter. Chapter 20 of Revelation. And yet it's become one of the biggest themes in Christian circles, you know, uh, maybe out of proportion to what it deserves or should, should have. Uh, not that the millennium is an unimportant topic, but... The attachment that people have given to the word millennium uh, is widespread. So, um, so we have the post-millennialists. We have names that I just mentioned to you. Um, somebody like R.C. Sproul, he waffled, and I heard him say at one of his conferences that would the topic of that. Were you there in 1999? I thought I met you there first, no? No. You were just a little baby back then, right? No. no. <laughs> um, he, he said that he, he'd been a non-millennialist. That was like kind of a parking lot for a lot of believers who don't know where they want to go in the future. He may have become a post-millennialist at the end of his life, but Sproul was not, and I think he would admit it, that this was not his expertise. He was not a prophetical scholar like Kenneth Gentry and um, uh, Bonson and some of these others, that uh, Lindsay and, and others that have delved into Bible prophecy, um, he, he would claim to be somewhat agnostic as far as what, where he would want to put himself. And I know he wrote certain books that lend itself to certain things, but I, I wouldn't lean on, on Sproul for that. I mean, he was a great teacher and preacher, and I highly respected him, and I loved him as a brother in the Lord. He was very fun to listen to and easy to listen to. Uh, he, could, he could reach the, you know, the highest levels of scholarship and yet get right down, put the cookies right on the bottom shelf for you as well, which was, which was kind of nice. He's a great one for introducing people to the doctrines of grace and, and uh, reformed theology and all that. So um, others that would be in the category of premillennialists would be, you know, some of the, most of the early church fathers were, and that's one of the reasons why some say, oh, all the other millennial views came later, but the early church, and one of the reasons why it's supposed that the early church, and again, I don't think that prophecy was a big deal, like it, it has been. Not, I think it's kind of calmed down in recent years. I mean, that's my feeling, I think. I don't see it promoted as much. I think, as a matter of fact, I had to deal with Bibles the other day, and one of the categories that we're talking about it had to do with end times and one lady you know popped right up and started talking like Hal Lindsey type language about the rapture and so on and I 
just said, wait a minute, there are other views, and I started explaining other views, and I think she saw that there are some merits in some other positions other than that one. So, uh, the, I think the early church fathers probably may have imbibed premillennialism because of the conditions that they found themselves in with heavy persecutions up until the time of Constantine. So you're making a distinction then between, you're saying there's premillennialism and there's dispensationalism and there's a combination of the two, because all dispensationalists are premillennialists. Correct. correct? And, and dispensationalism didn't come along until the 1800s. Oh yeah, we're going to get okay. to that. All right, all Thank you though, but yeah, we are talking about what is known as historic premillennialism okay. versus dispensational premillennialism. The dispensational form of premillennialism is something that was never really advocated in church history where there was literally going to be a, a physical temple reconstructed that the priesthood will again re, be reenacted that there will be a sacrificial system that altars will be rebuilt um, there will be a high priest and again that is very problematic because if if the Aaronic priesthood ended when Jesus became the new high priest after the order of Melchizedek, you'd have to go backwards to put the Aaronic priest back into the service of a temple. What happens to Jesus' high priesthood? You see, the high priesthood of Melchizedek eclipses the Aaronic priesthood. So that's not functional anymore. Jesus' sacrifice has not suspended it, but terminated it. Go ahead. So which belief is that one? What, that the temple is coming back again. Which one is There's that? two kinds of premillennial views. By millennium, let me just briefly address. Well, let me read further on and there'll be more light given on, on this topic in general. Premillennialists generally believe that the return of Christ will be preceded by certain signs, such as the preaching of the gospel to all nations, a great apostasy, wars, famines, earthquakes, the appearance of the Antichrist, and the Great Tribulation. His return will be followed by a period of peace and righteousness before the end of the world. Christ will reign as king in person or through a select group of followers. This reign, rather than being established by the conversion of individual souls over a long period of time, will come about suddenly in overwhelming power. The Jews will be converted and will become very important during this time. Nature will also share in the millennial blessings by being abundantly productive. Even ferocious beasts will be tamed. Evil is in check during the age by Christ, who rules with a rod of iron. However, at the end of the millennium, there is a rebellion of wicked men which almost overwhelms the saints. Some premillennials have taught that during the golden age, that's the millennium of a thousand years, um, dead believers will be resurrected with their glorified bodies to mingle freely with the rest of the inhabitants of the earth. Let me explain that one. That sounds kind of zombie-ish, doesn't it? <laughs> Go ahead. Um. Oh, no, I'm, I'm going to let you do what you're going to do. Oh, thank I you, sister. I thought you were going to take over Bradley. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> you have your hand up, somebody? Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's one of the loopholes that even uh, John Walwood, a, a, a prominent promoter of premillennialism, he admitted that one of the most difficult views of holding to a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth would be 
understanding Matthew 25, when we have all the goats and the sheep gathered together into the sheep, these are those that are alive. There's no mention of resurrection there. Those that are alive will come before the, the throne of the Lord, and the Lord will say to the righteous, the sheep, come ye blessed of my Father into the kingdom. So if they're in the kingdom, you also have to have in that kingdom those that are in the first resurrection, those that are raised from the dead. So you have those that have come to life in renewed bodies, perfect bodies, glorified bodies, on earth with those that do not have transformed bodies. Do you follow me on that? So you get the, those that are living that are just, okay, into the kingdom. Then you have those that come up out of the grave whose bodies are changed from corruptible to incorruptible. And they go on in the millennium and they mingle together with, with the unglorified body believers. And then there's problems with the millennial scheme from other standpoints as well. Like at the end of the millennium, you have um, Satan is, is loosed, right? Well, if believers are the, one that only, the only ones that go into the millennium, someone wrote a book called The Dark Side of the Millennium. Because you're going to have a rebellion against God. that Satan's going to be able to rally forces against Almighty God in the great day of the battle of Armageddon. Um, and I, you're probably like all over the place here. Where are we going? It, 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 it gets confusing. And it's hard to even explain all of that in just one sitting. I mean, I have to give you a course on the topic to, to really hammer all of these details out. So... It would be assumed in an audience like this, of, I believe, intelligent, you know, Bible-reading people, that you are uh, familiar with Matthew 25 and the, or Revelation 20, the great white throne, and the resurrection passages like the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Who are the all? That was one of the things we discussed the other day, because if you have a private rapture, well, where is it? Jesus certainly doesn't allude to it. And you would think that would be a high priority since if he's coming for his saints, that that, that would be alluded to by the Lord. But he says the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves will hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life. They that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. So this is what is known as the general resurrection. When all of humankind will be raised from the dead simultaneously. Now, what I should, I should uh, um, qualify that word simultaneous. Because in 1 Thessalonians 4, it says, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive, now again, the we and they that are dead in Christ are referring to believers. <laughs> Dispensationalists have a difficult time in discerning the difference between a New Testament believer and an Old Testament believer. So when people talk about the rapture of the church, does that mean Abraham's going to be in it? Is David going to be in it? Is Moses going to? We know they were righteous believers, of course. They saw Christ. He esteemed the reproaches of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. David writes, how happy is a man whose sins are forgiven, whose transgressions are covered. So we, we know that they were righteous people. Are they going to be caught up in the rapture of the church? It really is not the rapture of the church. It's the rapture of the righteous uh, making the church really uh, exclusive to the New Testament people of God. And that can be somewhat debatable because we don't want to segregate believers of the New Testament from believers of the Old Testament. Because in the book of Romans 11, we have the one olive tree. 
and we all partake of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. So there's one people of God, not two peoples of God with two destinies, but only one people. Uh, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. In that atoning sacrifice, Christ was paying the debt for those whose sins were being put on lay, lay what do they call that? Lay, uh, lay, lay away until Christ came and he, he paid for those sins. You're too young to remember when we had the uh, putting them on layaway, you know. Huh? No, I'm, I'm going back to like Kresge's and Denholm's. Uh, some of these. What one? Bradley Fairs, yeah. Uh, way back, I would say Montgomery Ward. Yeah, there's another one. Robert Hall. Um, they ended up. Uh, I don't know when they stopped layaway, but it doesn't exist as far as I know. It's been long gone. So anyway, you, you got the point, and that's how I try to help people understand how did Old Testament people get saved if Jesus didn't die uh, in their lifetime or in their era? And I said, well, their, their sins were put on layaway, okay? Uh, there was a reservation of their sins that Christ was going to come and, and put, put them away once for all. The transgressions of the sins of the past Christ paid for those sins. That's why we have to believe in limited atonement because we have Sodom and Gomorrah that are undergoing the vengeance of eternal fire. Jesus couldn't have been dying for the Sodomites, right? Or anyone else, the Goliath or whoever else would have been uh, the rich man that died and went to hell. I mean, you know, on and on. You, we, we know that there were people that were undergoing vengeance and judgment in hell. So Christ's death could not be unlimitedly applicable to them who were already perishing in their sins. Just, of course, until the, the resurrection of their bodies and then death and hell will deliver up the dead which were in them. They will go into the lake of fire. That's the ultimate abode of the wicked. For the righteous, Jesus says, in my Father's house are many mansions. He says to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Keith and I and Sharon met a bunch of, of Seventh-day Adventists yesterday. We were just coming out of the pickle barrel on Pleasant Street, my famous restaurant, I love it, um, and we're just talking, and he, he spotted a, a, a gospel piece of literature booklet, and uh, I said, oh, that's Seventh-day Adventist right away, Ellen G. White's name was right on it, within like 20 seconds, about 15, all with blue shirts that said compassion, I said, oh, who are these compassion people, and then they, I could see something, what did it say underneath it, do you remember, uh, Keith? It said something like about soul sleep or something, and right away I knew that they were Seventh-day Adventists. And anyway, we got into a, a, a bit of a discussion about the afterlife, and because I tried to say to the, the gentleman who was kind of leading the pack with his wife, I said, so where will you go when you die? He says, well, I hope to go to heaven after the resurrection. I said, ah, so you don't believe in immediate consciousness after death, that when you die... You go right to be with the Lord. Well, about many things. We had a little bit of a debate going on there for a while on that topic and, and some other sort of related, related things. So these things are all important to the future. We have what I would call personal eschatology, like what happens to you and me when we die or anyone else, what goes on at that point. And then there's general eschatology. With the word eschatology, by the, mean, by the way, means what? Yeah, study of end time things, okay? So, there's, uh, what's important to me personally is my personal eschatology and what is applicable to the universe 
is general eschatology. Personal eschatology has to do with my departure and where will I be after I die and where will, what is my ultimate future end. Uh, we know we're from dust and we go to dust. And uh, 1 Corinthians 15 says the mortal will put on immortality. The corruptible puts on incorruption. That shall be brought to pass the thing. O death, where is your victory? O grave, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus. So what a, what a beautiful prospect we have ahead for us. So what we die in, like Paul says, it's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. So that's something that ties in with eschatology, because you and I will be reanimated, our bodies, I should say, will be reanimated. We will never lose soul consciousness, when we die, the soul continues to survive the death of the body. Okay? That's, uh, if you don't believe that, you're what is known as a conditional immort immortalist. You, don't, you believe that your immortality is dependent on how you are judged at the resurrection. So those who are conditional immortalists, like Jehovah Witnesses, like the Seventh-day Adventists, Christian Adventists, Advent Christian Church and on and on. There's several more of them. They believe that at the resurrection, well, first of all, when you die, you go into a state of unconsciousness. And it's not until the second coming of Christ that the body and soul are restructured and reanimated. The, the, the consciousness comes back to life again. And there at the judgment seat of Christ is when their destinies are determined. If they're, if they're not saved, that they weren't true converts, not true believers, then they would be cast into the lake of fire to be annihilated, exterminated. So they, they believe that the consciousness is only temporary after the resurrection until the point that their souls are burnt out, if I can put it that way. They're burnt out of existence. That's known as annihilationism. Again, it never really affected the, the, the orthodox doctrines of the historic church creedally. There's some good men, even in our day and in recent days, that have embraced that. I think it's an erroneous doctrine. I, don't, I wouldn't call it a, a heresy, but a B one, because I think it affects the atoning work of Christ. And if the punishment for my sins was only a temporal punishment that I would have earned and deserved, that would have only lasted post-resurrection and they don't give you any duration how long you'll be punished. It's sort of almost like purgatory when you, when you get ultimately uh, to the point where all the penalty of your sins are paid for, then your suffering ends at that point and you're exterminated. Go ahead. How, how do they respond to um, how do, the sense that Jesus didn't suffer eternally? So it's almost like the flip side of that coin. Yeah. So Jesus didn't suffer eternally, so how could he have died for my sin if he didn't suffer That eternally? would be one of the reasons they would use to say that, that the punishment for sin is finite and not infinite. But we would say that the, the punishment that Christ endured was an infinite punishment that he paid in a finite period of time. And only he could do something like that. Could my sins forever... How did I go? Uh, uh, could my sins forever... No. Could my tears forever flow? Not for sins could ever atone, but thy blood and thine alone. There'll be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth um, endlessly. I mean, this is the most horrible doctrine in, in human history, in, in, in human vocabulary. I mean, um, 
even John Stott, who embraced annihilationism, he ended up, I believe, as an agnostic. He said that in an interview with Christianity Today. I think he was pressured and gave it more serious thought. Now, it's hard to say that about a great scholar like John Stott. I'm not mm. saying that he exactly backpedaled, but I remember in reading his book, he had a debate with a fellow named David Edwards, who was a liberal, and that was one of the topics that they were debating was about hell, and that's what John Stott's view, I think around 1988 or something like that, with John's view about believing in extermination or annihilation rather than uh, eternal conscious punishment came out. And a lot of scholars were kind of uh, riled by that, that he, he, he advocated that position. And I, I, I'm sure different ones had uh, conversed with him on it, colleagues of his own. But my point was, that, oh, in the book he had said something like, and, and I agree with this point, he says, if you think about the realities of hell, your mind will crack. I mean, it's a sobering, sobering thing. I mean, hell, just, just the, even if it was temporal, would be uh, shocking. But to think of it as being eternal is even beyond our capabilities. Well, doesn't that just, uh, doesn't that just uh, give us a description of just how heinous sin really is? Mm. And we don't think of sin as being that big a deal. Yeah. But obviously God does. Thank you. That's so true. And also it enhances the atoning work of Christ. Just think of the, the magnitude of the price that he paid. If, I, if my sins eternal, deserve eternal judgment and Jesus on the cross could say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And could then say, it is finished. I mean, that word, it is finished. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord, Sister Pat. It's done. He paid the price of the penalty of our sins, which would be... Uh, the smoke of their torment, it says, ascended forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. How do you get away from that? What, what's being consumed if it says it burns forever and ever and ever and ever? It's got to be some substance there, and that's the soul of the person that goes on endlessly. This is a motivation for evangelizing. We just, I mean, it, one that you try to sometimes downplay it because it sounds almost... Um, too uh, ridiculous in a modern day to talk about, hey, if you die, you're going to go to hell. Like, what? What are you talking about? I mean, the word hell's on everybody's lips, practically, you know, and it's used in such loose terms that it's almost a fictional place, and it's something of ancient history where dumb people who didn't know better before the Enlightenment would use such terminology, but we know better now. And the other thing that's kind of throwing some... Uh, some water on, on the whole thing would be the near-death experiences. People that are claiming that they die and they're, they were dead for 20 minutes or 10 minutes or whatever, half an hour, and they went to heaven and they saw John the Baptist. And Susan Kozak said, well, did the person see him with his head or without his head? <laughs> Do you remember that, Susie? Uh, good question. So, uh, I don't have all the answers to that. I, I still mull over the whole near-death experience thing. There's a whole community of people that, uh, that uh, there's, there's, a, there's a society of people that have had near-death experiences. Um, but one of the, the various problems with it, first of all, a lot of the reports they give are just so unbiblical um, that, that you'd have to say, That's not, that wasn't a real experience of you being in heaven. It's impossible. Um, and and the, the different things that they describe, supposedly when they go to heaven, 
is, is ridiculous. A Mormon, uh, what was her name? Betty Eady wrote a book, I think in 91. That was one of the first books. She wrote about her near-death experience, which ironically happened 20 years before. She decides to write the book on it. It becomes a best, New York's best-selling book. And, and, and that sort of popularized this idea of near-death experiences. And, it, and it's a way, I think, that Satan can subdue the reality of hell as described by Jesus in the Bible. Go ahead, brother. Gary Habermas and J.P. Oh, thank done you. a lot of work on that. If you, and if you want to read, I mean, Gary Habermas is also the world's leading expert in the resurrection. He's also written extensively on near-death experiences. Yes, and I've read, read his stuff and I've yeah. watched him on YouTube, too. And, I mean, some of this stuff, I don't know, I don't have answers for it, but mm. uh, he's the one that I heard say uh, of a person who had died... In, in a hospital, and um, this person was dead for such and such amount of time, and during that period, her soul actually elevated the of the above the height of the hospital, mm -hmm. and she saw a blue sneaker on the roof. Okay. After when she when she was revived and came back consciously, she had told people that this is what she saw, and word circulated. And they had actually asked the janitor if he would, you know, this lady claims that she saw He goes up, and what's there? A blue sneaker. I mean, like, I'm, 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 this isn't fictional. <laughs> I mean, these are, these are facts that, you know, intelligent, conservative people have investigated. So I don't, I don't have the answers to this. Um, I, I just... I just don't want that to become sort of something that you can bank on. Like, oh, I'm going to have this. People come back and say, oh, I didn't want to come back and whatnot. You know, so obviously they didn't go to hell. And atheists don't go to hell either. Many of, some of them, these people are atheistic people. And they have these glorious uh, experiences after death. And um, that's like I can say, there are many spirits that are out in the world. You know what I mean? Um, there's the invisible world that we just can't, we don't have answers for. And that's why the Lord tells us to stay away from necromancing and from, you know, sorcerers and witches and all this, this black world that, that's real. Um, in college, I, I had a, a gal, she was a, a class or two beneath me, but she was a literal witch. And, and she went to all the witch uh, uh, powwows that they had, and she was casting spells. Over there. She hated my guts. Um, and I was a professing Christian, and I was definitely promoting the Bible and Jesus, although I don't think I, had, I hadn't come to that full, full understanding of the gospel, but enough that I, I didn't want to go and see the exorcist, for instance. I thought that was horrible. I didn't want to... Get, get involved with anything like that. Um, but anyway, so, I, I mean, I, there are real powers out there. I mean, I don't, seances and, uh, you know, psychics, David Copperfield, and I saw in person, amazing Randy, some of the older people might remember that guy's name. Amazing Randy, not that one. Did you know him, Randy? Amazing Randy. But I mean... They brought him to Holy Cross. And again, I'm getting off the topic, but you're probably into it right at the moment. Uh, but at Holy Cross, he, um, this is amazing, Randy. He's a psychic, right? So he says, I need two class rings from any two people. Well, the two people that happened to give the class rings were two football players that I played ball with, right? So 
on the inside of the ring, they each had their initials. So he said, this is yours, right? He told me, he said, get your initials in it, right? He took me on this, your initials are in it, right? Both of them, okay? He put them in his hand like this, and he shuffled them like that. He turned over his palms, and they were interlocked. Interlocked. Nuts. Um, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. There is an amazing ring, but it's an amazing crescent. Thank you for correcting. What's his first name, is it? Okay, thank you for correcting that, because Michelle was with me on that occasion. Uh, David Blaine, another one. He went into a New York Knicks basketball practice. They were just shooting around hoops. He got them all together. He was doing a card trick, and he was saying, um, he put the decks on the, the cards on the floor, and, and he said, he's looking for the card. They, they all picked the card, and he like, walked away, and... And he spread the deck out, he's going through it, and he says, ah, it's not there. He says, uh, that basketball, um, he flipped the knife over, he says, would you mind cutting that basketball up? Basketball. Cut it up, and inside it was the kai. Yeah. I mean, and you're looking at the faces of the New York Knicks basketball players, astonished. Now, there is a real spirit world out there. But see, people who don't have a foundation, this is something that they can grasp onto. Oh, this is so... My daughter, even one of my daughters, has gotten uh, into it. I don't think she is at the moment. But she was very infatuated with these supernatural-like powers. You know what I mean? That uh, I think the Bible leaves room for them, but tells us to not investigate them. The world of the occult. It is totally satanically ruled and it's a wonderful way of Satan to blind the eyes of them so that they won't see the truth of the gospel because they, they can trump the Bible with these other kind of supernatural experiences that they uh, entertain and they have witnessed themselves. Didn't Jesus say that you, see, you believe because you see and so they, they can see this miracle or whatever and so that's what they want to believe. Well, remember the Egyptians, right? And when Moses was doing his miracles and they were duplicating them up to a point. It wasn't until he hit the ground with a staff and gnats appeared and they said, this is none other than the finger of God. They had to, He stopped them right there in their tracks. That's as far as we can go, folks. This is in a whole other category. And that's because the Lord was there. And so I think there are things that are going on in the satanic world that cannot come close to the bodily resurrection of Jesus who was dead and buried three days, you know, and rose from the dead. Among other things, like Lazarus dead four days in the grave. You don't see that kind of power by the devil because Jesus, the scripture says about the Lord, he gives life and he takes life. There are some limits. And the Lord has allowed the devil to have these kinds of powers. I mean, there's no other explanation if we believe in the sovereign rule of God over all the universe and you know, why this, why that. I don't know. We, we don't have answers for that. So anyway, we've gotten off the topic of the millennium. <laughs> I hope you'll come back again. No, but um, let me finish what I was reading uh, and we'll, we've got a few more minutes, I guess. Um, in contrast to the premillennialists, well, let me just say what the, what the millennium is because we're running out of time just so that you don't go away. He says, boy, I thought that was going to be a Bible study on the millennium. What's the millennium? Okay, so when Jesus comes, this is the premillennial view. That Jesus, they're waiting for him to come. This has been a common view throughout the church. And I would say it's in second place from my standpoint. I'm an amillennialist, but um, 
every every position I think has some degree of weakness in it. I just think our millennial, our millennialism has the least of the weaknesses, and I, I haven't been able, or anybody hasn't to be con, been able to convince me otherwise. That doesn't mean that I'm right and and premillennialism is wrong. I'm not. I'm not. I don't think eschatology is a, a subject that should interfere with Christian fellowship anyway. You know, it's not a, a high priority. It's not an essential doctrine of the Christian faith. But um, millennialism, historic premillennial view, is that Christ returns. There's the judgment seat that takes place. The righteous go into the kingdom. The resurrection occurs too, by the way. The resurrection of everybody. The premillennial view. Not dispensational. I'll, take, I'll mention that in a second. But everybody's raised from the dead. The righteous go into the kingdom. The unrighteous depart from the accursed into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That is the beginning of the premillennial period of time. So they enter into the kingdom and they use Revelation 20 as the catch-all to interpreting Bible prophecy that there's going to be a 1,000 year reign of Christ who's going to be on the earth. All right? The church, which we know from Thessalonians, says, so shall we ever be with the Lord, that is God's people. So wherever Christ is, the church believers have to be with him. So we too, with Old Testament saints, those that live, those that die, are all going to be together, righteous that is, in this millennial period of time, which is where you have the lion and the lamb lying down together. You have tranquility, serenity in the uh, animal kingdom. Uh, everything will be glorious. It's known as the golden age. 1,000 years. Matter of fact, the Jehovah Witnesses love to promote the millennium, the paradise on earth. And I say to them, okay, that's 1,000 years. What's next? What's 1,000 years compared to eternity? You know what I mean? That's a, just a blip on time. So anyway, that's one approach you can use with them. What about after, after paradise? Where do we go? If you get the 144,000 that are going to be in heaven reigning and, and uh, us poor ones who get, become Jehovah Witnesses now, we're only on earth and just for a thousand years. But what, they don't have answers for the, the, those kinds of questions. So, okay, so everybody understand, at Christ's second coming, he's going to set up his kingdom here on earth. All right? And even among historic premillennialists, there, there's no dogmatism among them as to whether this is going to be like that or that's going to be like that. And, you know, are there going to be planes flying? Are we going to have you know boats crossing the Atlantic? I mean, you can come up. A baby's going to be born. I think they would say yes. Baby will be born. There'll be some naturalness about that millennial period. Uh, but there's a lot of there's a lot of um, guesswork, conjecture about what the millennium is going to be like. I, tried to talk to some of my millennial, premillennial brothers, and there's just a vagueness about it. And they would just take certain Old Testament passages and say, this is when these prophecies will be fulfilled. And, um, okay, okay. All right. So now the dispensational premillennialists, and that would take a whole class to talk about what that is, but their belief is that Christ is returning at any moment, at any time, in a secretive rapture, so that, that all who are alive, that are believers, with all that have died as believers, will be together, caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Hallelujah. I mean, you've got to believe that, because that's what the Bible says. But they believe that there's going to be a suspension of them in heaven, uh, or above the earth somewhere, where they will be the, with the Lord for seven years. 
during that seven-year period, there's a tribulation that takes place, and you get the 144,000 and whatnot that fills in during that gap of time. And then Christ comes. They don't want to say twice in the second coming, but they would say maybe the second stage of the second coming, um, or the, the real second coming is that when he comes publicly. So they say the first time he's coming privately. Uh, there was a, a, a popular movie called Thief in the Night, mm-hmm. what, back in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the Timothy LaHaye series that came out with a Left Behind. Is yes. that what yes. it was called? Mm-hmm. And boy, that, that caught a lot of people's attention. Mm-hmm. The fictional type ideas that he has and, you know, supposedly pilots were being questioned on whether or not they were believers or not because if they were, then, uh, you know, they would be caught away and the, and the plane would crash. I mean, it, it, it really gets out of hand. You know, when you think of people driving street in the street and the rapture occurs and some are left, it, it, it gets a little cartoonish almost. So, and, and, I, and I, don't, I know things are going to be dramatically altered catastrophically when Christ returns, of course, you know. Uh, uh, new heavens and new earth, you know, uh, the first heaven, the first earth were passed away. That's obviously going to be dramatic change that will occur at that point. So the dispensational premillennialist believes that at the second stage of his second coming, he's going to set up a millennium of thousand years where he's going to reign on earth. He's going to reign as king on earth here uh, after the order of King David. And the temple is going to be reconstructed, which is being supposedly the hopes are by the Jews. And a lot of Christians are promoting this. They're sending money in hopes that the temple can be rebuilt, which to me is redundant. Do I want to see a, a sacrificial system re-inaugurated? I don't want to. I'm glad that that's over with. I'm glad I can look at Calvary and say, Jesus paid it all. It's history now. We look. We are the temple of the living God. That's what my little book is about. That we have a king. We have a. We already have a, a priest. We have the new covenant. We are the temple of the living God. We're not looking for a future temple. We have a final sacrifice. Jesus paid it all, etc. So that that's that's their scheme of things. It's going to be a Jewish millennium where priests are sacrificing. The, the temple is again going to be that central religious center of the world and people are going to bring their gifts to it and, and so on. And then at the end is when Satan is loosed and when there's a big uproar and rebellion against God, Almighty God, and then Jesus, uh, fire comes down from heaven and destroys them and then you have, uh, I saw a new heavens and a new earth, Revelation 21, is established endlessly where the saints of God will reign forever and ever with the Lord and that will be the, the ultimate conclusion of Bible prophecy. Okay, and that's the ultimate conclusion of our study this morning, which I, I guess that was part one. So stay tuned for uh, whenever the next one will be. Like Pat was explaining, because we're doing a, a, a series on the surveying of the Old Testament, I forget who's next that will do the next book, which I think is First Kings. And in between, because it's hard to get a teacher every week to do that, so about every other week we'll, we'll be doing a topical. And I'll, I'll probably be allowed to complete or do more work on this Bible prophecy thing. And your, your wheels are probably turning. You're going to come with more questions the next time. Okay, so I'm nervous about shutting this thing off. Um, hmm. Is anybody smart here with electronics? Not you. Yeah, did they stop somewhere? <laughs> Randy. <laughs>
Okay, let's call this prayer.